Good morning, everyone. You're an active bunch this morning, I tell you. There is energy in the air. It's a good thing. Now, before we look at our passage this morning, I want to revisit some of the suggestions that I gave us last week as we entered into these very challenging chapters. First of all, I want us to remember that we said that it is very important for us to recognize that God is the author and creator of life, that He exists far above the limits of our own humanity. And what we are doing as we enter into His Word is we're seeking to understand His story about us and not create our story about Him. He must be high and lifted up far above any of our own opinions and ideas. That's the first and perhaps the most important thing. Secondly, we said we need to preserve the integrity of divine mystery. We must accept the fact that we will not find a satisfying answer to every theological question. And if you're like me, that's a hard thing to accept because I want all the answers, right? But the fact of the matter is we serve an infinite God and yet we exist with finite understanding. So we will not have all the answers. But we can trust in this infinite God who exists with infinite wisdom. And so we can rest in his sovereign control. Amen? And then lastly, we said that we need to look at chapters 9 through 11 as a single unit with really, as we talked about last week, a central theme. Paul introduced that theme when he revealed his grief for Israel's unbelief. Despite the detailed revelation of a promised Messiah, many were still relying on religious tradition instead of trusting in Jesus Christ as their Savior. That's what was causing so much grief in the heart of Paul. So Paul emphasizes that what I believe to be the primary theme in these three chapters, and that is despite Israel's unbelief, God's word has not failed. That God didn't make a mistake when he set Israel as his chosen people. And now he's scrambling to come up with plan B because they didn't follow his plan. God's plan has always been sovereignly ordained despite Israel's unbelief. There's one path. One path that leads to the promised Messiah And God alone determines what that path will be. It is His sovereign choice, made without interference from human intervention. A choice that is determined ultimately by God's mercy and grace. Everything God does, and don't miss this, everything God does has a redemptive purpose in mind. All of His actions, every one of them, include an invitation for us to believe. He tells us in James chapter 4, verse 6, that God opposes the proud, and he gives grace to the humble, which is why we said last week, we have to come to a place where we decide, will we harden our hearts, or will we surrender our life? 
I believe Paul continues in this same theme in our passage this morning, once again highlighting the sovereignty of God and bringing forth the promised Messiah. See, God ultimately wants us to receive a gift that we cannot earn, and here's why. So that we don't receive the punishment that we truly deserve. And he wants us to understand that clearly through his word. So let's pray that we do this morning as we we go to his word. Lord, as we come to your word, we do want to see clearly. And we do believe that you spoke in ways that, that really teach our hearts to understand. To understand your great love and mercy. To understand your patient invitation. To understand the reality of our sin and the deep and desperate need that we have for a Savior. Lord, perhaps in the normal daily life we we lose sight of that desperate need. And maybe even cling to our own abilities instead of really trusting in you. And so this morning, Lord, would you speak to us in a way through your word that we come to the place that you intend us to be as you created us to be, as those who trust in you, who belong to you, and who find their fulfillment in you. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, turn to Romans chapter 9. We'll pick up where we left off last in verse 19. I'd love for you to follow along with me, if you would, beginning in verse 19, where Paul writes and says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or or does not the potter have the right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with such patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Now, I think it's important to connect what we talked about last week with what our passage has to say this morning. Because last week, Paul really introduced the first potential objection to the idea of God's sovereignty. He said that some might say, in a sense, that If God determines the lineage that leads to the Messiah, and if his choice is not based on the merits of any individual, then is that really the right thing to do? And the question behind that is, shouldn't our decisions somehow influence God's choices? Paul addresses that question and says, no. No, because everything God does is done with infinite wisdom and is covered with complete mercy and grace. He may harden the heart of those who willfully rebel, like we learned last week with Pharaoh, or he might humble others so that they come to a place of surrender like we see with Moses. But God never causes someone to become who they willfully who they do not willfully choose to be. Do you understand that? God does not cause anyone to become who they didn't already willfully choose to be. God's sovereign choice is not influenced by human intervention. God made a promise. He gave his word to bring redemption to the world. 
And, and he alone will determine how that promise is fulfilled. The word of God has never and will never fail. So here in this next section, we encounter really the, the second potential objection to God's sovereignty. If God chooses who to harden and who to humble, how are we responsible for our actions? If God's choice is not based on the merits in the, of the individual, then what does it matter what the individual does? And, and the question behind this objection is, is he really fair? Paul's initial response is really not an answer as much as it is a word of caution. He basically says, if God is the author and creator of life, and we believe he is, and if his decisions are made with infinite wisdom and perfect holiness, do we really have a right to question his authority? It reminds me of a passage in Isaiah where I think he says something very similar. And I want you to just listen to these words as I read them in Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 12. It asks these questions. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And, and who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him of the way of understanding? Who did that? The answer is simple. No one. No one. As God says later in that same book, Isaiah, he says in chapter 55, verse 8, For my thoughts are not as your thoughts, and my ways are not as your ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my thoughts, or my ways, higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. As we said last week, and this is really important, if we truly believe in God, then we have to let God be God. And trust him in that. So Paul continues with the illustration of the potter and the clay. And one of the things that I think is really important for us to understand is that clay in its natural form is, very, is a very hard and brittle part of the soil. Okay? Now, it's only soft as we normally think of clay when water is applied to it. So... In a similar way, the natural condition of the human heart is hard and brittle as well. We learn that from Romans chapter 3 when we walk through that passage together and it says that no one understands, that no one seeks God, that we've all turned aside and gone our way, that there is no one who does good, not even one. In our natural condition, our heart is hard. Unless God's grace is applied to our lives, we remain incurably resistant to God's redemptive work. Paul makes this point to the Ephesians when he writes to them in chapter 2, verse 1, and says that we, all of us, 
We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And so the only thing, if we want to talk about what we deserve, okay, if we want to just take that road for a minute, if we want to talk about what we truly deserve, the only thing that we really deserve is God's judgment for our sin. Our only hope for something different is God's mercy and grace. In Paul's illustration, he's talking about how God is the potter and he refers to us as the clay. Again, our heart is naturally hardened by sin and only made soft by God's grace. And then he forms us into a vessel. Think of it as a container, like a, like a bowl or a cup, something that he can fill with dignity and purpose and worth. Paul says that some were created for a noble purpose, Others were created for more common use. But God is the one who determines what that will be. But all, and don't miss this, all of those vessels created by God are valuable. Why? Because they were created and crafted by God alone. Paul then describes the patient endurance of God towards vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Now, it's important to understand here that he's not referring to some subset of humanity that was created to go to hell. That's not what Paul is saying here. And the reason I know absolutely that that's true is because I believe Paul is describing every single one of us. We were vessels of wrath. We go into Ephesians, that very same chapter when Paul goes on, and he describes this. He says, among, uh, among them we too all, not some, not a few, but all formerly lived in the lust of the flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children, or we could say here, vessels of wrath, even as the rest. And so praise the Lord for not giving us what we truly deserve. I recently ran across an encouragement from someone that says, we need to give thanks to God for things that he didn't do. This is one of those things. Thank you that you didn't give us what we truly deserve and instead lavished your grace and mercy upon us. He says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, he is patient towards us not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. See, God lovingly reveals his judgment for sin in order to call us to repentance. God lovingly reveals his power in order to invite us to believe and to trust in him. See, Paul knows that, that God is patient towards rebellious Israel, even in their unbelief. But his justice will require his judgment for their sin. And so Paul is calling them to repentance. Because God alone can take this vessel of wrath and turn it into a vessel of mercy. One's destined for destruction, the other one for God's glory. Look at how he continues in verse 23. 
He says in verse 23, And he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. As he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, my people, and her who is not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it is said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. Paul now turns his attention to these vessels of mercy, and he does so with grateful gratitude. I mean, he says, this is us. This is, we are the ones. Vessels of mercy. And not because we did anything to deserve God's favor. Again, going back to that Ephesians passage, it says in verse 4, but God, being rich in what? Mercy. Because of his great what? Love for us. Even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. Why? Because by what? Grace you have been saved. Mercy, love, grace has been poured on each and every one of us. Paul says that grace has been extended to both Jew and Gentile. God shows no partiality. His sovereignty is not influenced by human intervention. And his redemption has been made available to all. Why? Because we all need it. Equally. This has always been God's plan of redemption from the very beginning. Paul then points to the prophet Hosea to help validate his points. He goes back to the time when the nation of Israel had become a divided kingdom. The northern kingdom separated itself and, and no longer worshipped at the temple in Jerusalem. Instead, what they did was set up their own places of worship and mixed it with idolatry, pagan idolatry from the world around them. And Hosea, much like Paul is trying to do in Romans, is warning Israel for willfully rebelling against God's mercy. Salvation is not a birthright for the Jew or for anyone else. Repentance is what leads to salvation, no matter who you are. And if anyone takes God's mercy for granted, listen to this, they are willfully becoming objects of God's wrath. Willfully becoming objects of God's wrath, which is exactly what happened to the northern kingdom? Because not too long after Hosea gave them this warning, Assyria came in and took them into captivity. They then assimilated into that culture and really completely lost their identity as God's chosen people. Look at how Paul continues in verse 27. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word on the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, unless the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become like Sodom and we have re would have resembled Gomorrah. See, Paul then turns from Isaiah, who actually lived during the same time as 
Hosea. That's confusing, isn't it? But they, they were contemporaries of one another. Where Hosea spoke to the nation of, uh, of Israel in the north, Isaiah prophesied to Israel in the south, known as Judah. Because they too, like the north, were compromising their faith. And in time, as a judgment of God, much like we saw with the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom was also taken into captivity by Babylon. But unlike the northern kingdom, there was a faithful remnant that remained obedient to the Lord even in the midst of captivity. People like Daniel, Nehemiah, Ezra. God miraculously preserved their lives in order to protect His promise. Because the promise that He made was that the Messiah would come through the tribe of Judah. And so a remnant was preserved. Remember, there's only one path that leads to the promised Messiah. And God alone determines what that path will be. And God made a promise. And that promise has not and will not fail, even though many in Israel failed to follow God's word. And because of their compromise, they were no longer distinguished from the culture around them. But all the while, that remnant was being preserved, a lineage that led to Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promise. And all those who trust in him Paul says, become sons of the living God. It's what John tells us in his gospel. When he writes in chapter 1, verse 12, he says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, speaking of Jesus, who were born, get this, not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Paul's closing quotation proclaims, Were it not for the mercy of God, no one would be saved. We are so unworthy, and yet he is so patient, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. He faithfully endures and proclaims to us the hope of redemption in Christ alone, turning vessels of wrath into vessels of mercy simply because of his grace. That's how you've been saved. Look at how it continues in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel pursuing the a law of righteousness did not, receive, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they were stumbling over a stumbling stone, just as it is written. Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him, speaking of Jesus, will not be disappointed. In these closing verses, Paul turns to his kinsmen, his fellow Jews, and he wants them to know that God did not give them the law in order to somehow set them up for failure. The law had a redemptive purpose. It was not worthless. Because the law was not the problem. The problem was how the law was being used 
See, the, the law was intended to be a witness for Christ. It was intended to be a shadow of things yet to come. As Paul said earlier in Romans chapter 7, verse 12, that the law is holy, that the commandments are holy and righteous and good. But only because it pointed to redemption, it was not the source of redemption. It's a big difference. We know that because of what the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 10. Listen to what it says beginning in verse 1. For the law, here it is, since it is only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had a consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, here's the intent, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And Paul's grief was due to the fact that many of his fellow Israelites were still relying on those religious traditions to accomplish their redemption. They wrongly assumed if they did the right thing, it would put God into their debt. In other words, if they took the initiative, they expected God to respond so that His mercy and grace was ultimately a response to their good deeds. But that was not the purpose of the law. In fact, it was just the opposite. The law is an unattainable standard of the holy and righteous character of God. And as such, it could only be fulfilled by God alone. Which is why Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish. I came to fulfill. Why? Because he was God incarnate. The only one who could fulfill the law. The law is what exposes our sin. In, in effect, it puts us in debt to his mercy and grace. See, God is the one who took the initiative, and he's the one inviting us to respond in faith. Which is why Jesus was such a stumbling block to the Jew. Because they were expecting the promised Messiah to bring them a reward. They were not looking for a Savior who would forgive their sins. The Gentiles were being saved because they repented of their sin. They recognized that they were vessels of wrath just as the rest. They were preserved only because of God's patient endurance. They were saved by faith in Christ alone. And, and Paul was grieved because his people are the ones who technically should have had the advantage. They were given the law to turn them again and again and again to the grace and mercy of God so that when Jesus came on the scene, they should have looked at him and said, there he is. That's the promised Messiah. That's the one we've been waiting for. He's who we desperately need. And I just wonder if even today in our world when we get caught up in our own 
religious routines if we don't lose sight of our desperate need as well. So much of what is taught in the modern church is based upon what we must do. And listen, I'm sure I've been guilty of that same mistake, so if I have, please forgive me, because it's just not true. Now, we're not so prone to follow the Mosaic law like the Israelites were in the context of our passage, but we have our own set of rules, don't we? Our own list of things that we feel like we should do. And when that's the case, though, whether it's the Mosaic law or our own list, do we not follow into the same trap of the Israelites where we have this works-based salvation where our good deeds puts God into our debt? By taking the initiative, by doing the right thing, we expect God to respond. If we're really honest with ourselves, we believe he owes us a blessing because of our good deeds. It's the same thing. But that's not the message of the gospel. God owes us nothing. And we are completely dependent upon his mercy and grace. Our life should be a worshipful response to all he has done. Jesus paid our debt and we owe him everything. Everything. It's like the song we sing, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. In fact, we're going to sing that song in closing. And I want you to make that a prayer based on what we just looked at in our passage this morning. Before we do, let me close this in prayer. Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. And Lord, do please forgive us if we fall in the trap of our own religious routines and forget our desperate need for Jesus. Not just in salvation, and the forgiveness of sins, which we clearly, desperately need, turning vessels of wrath into vessels of mercy. Lord, thank you for your grace that makes that possible. But Lord, even beyond that, every single day, we still desperately need you. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And yet, so often, we try to function in life on our own. So may we pause, even in just this moment, and confess to you, that we desperately need you, that we belong to you, and we can only faithfully serve you as we humbly follow you. Help us to trust in you more than we trust ourselves. We pray this in your name. Amen. Please stand and let's sing together. I sure hope when you leave this morning you are overwhelmed by God's mercy and grace that has been lavished upon you. And that you feel great confidence to go to the throne of grace, knowing that that's where you find forgiveness and hope of redemption. And, and if you are in a place where maybe your heart is hard and you have been rebelling, I want you to be made aware of God's patient endurance and his loving invitation to surrender your life so that he can make you who he's created you to be and allow you to flourish as he originally intended. That's his loving work that he wants to accomplish in all of our lives. And so I pray that you live that out this week and you rejoice deeply in God's grace and mercy towards you. Amen.